Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of the Proof of Coverage podcast. I'm your host, Connor Lovely, working at Hexagon Wireless, which is a protocol agnostic accelerator for the DUI space. So what that means is that we work with DUI, decentralized wireless protocols like Helium, Pollen, and XNet to build out their networks and buy or build financial services and other software applications to accelerate the growth of their networks later stage. And I'm joined today by my host, Mahesh Ramakrishnan. Connor, appreciate that introduction. My name is Mahesh Ramakrishnan, and uh, I'm the co-founder of Escape Velocity Ventures, which is an early stage thesis-driven venture firm that invests specifically in ideas that kind of use crypto incentives to power real-world infrastructure, from energy on one end to decentralized wireless most prominently on the other end. And Today, I am super excited to have the pleasure of hosting Sint Connexia, or, you know, as the meat space knows him, Rich Duvall, who's the founder and mad genius behind XNet, the first carrier-focused wireless network that launched in the last couple of weeks and has been making waves. Now, Rich, it's great to have you here. I guess my first question... Great to be yeah, here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's awesome. I, I know like people have been trying to figure out who you are behind the scenes. We've seen a ton of Twitter traffic <laughs> around it. But, you know, first question before we kind of hear about your amazing project is everywhere I go, people seem to refer to you as a mad genius. What's that all about? Well, you know, that's a great question, Mahesh. I've, uh, gosh, I've been doing kind of technically driven innovation stuff for a long time now. And I kind of got my, my start in this at the MIT Media Lab many years ago. And the Media Lab is a place that doesn't teach you to think small, right? So it all had to be big stuff and kind of crazy stuff. And it was a wonderful environment that would encourage people to really say, not just what is the small thing in front of me, but what's the big picture problem that we should be tackling. And, and that inspired me to say, gosh, you know, why should I make a small plan? I want to tackle really big issues. But if you go out in the world and say, hey, I want to do more than just like, oh, I don't know, solve the small problem or make a living. I want to tackle climate change. I want to connect the unconnected. I want to, oh, I don't know, make a synthetic fuel from, from the air and green electricity, another project I've worked on. People take this stuff and they're like, really? First of all, can you do it? But also, why? Why would you shoot at something so big? And my answer has always been, look, you know, make no small plans because you're not going to inspire yourself. You're not going to inspire the people around you. And if you shoot for the moon and I don't know, you just end up in high earth orbit, you've got somewhere, right? That's, that's, that's pretty good. But if your plan is, yeah, I'm going to get out of bed today. And then I don't know, maybe I'll walk the dogs. Like you'll probably accomplish that. But at the end of the day, you know, you've walked the dogs, you've made the dogs happy, but, but you haven't necessarily had a bigger impact. And so because I think I've always tried to lead with some kind of impact-oriented vision, whether that be in the crypto space, we did projects in food, we did projects in connectivity, we did projects in transportation at X and, and at Apple before that I was working on stuff that I can't talk about, which were all really cool. You know, because we did all these things, you know, we we didn't always succeed, but we always moved the needle in some way. So I, I take the I take the title of mad genius as as a very positive thing. And when I was at X, the Moonshot Factory, 
where I ended up essentially a CTO, I ended up calling myself a director of rapid evaluation and mad science. Dreams was was sort of my was was my was my title there, and and it was it was really not so much because I'm the dreamer, but I wanted to inspire other people to think really big and tackle big problems. So so honestly, if, if people take nothing away from this from this podcast except hey go out and tackle some really big problem because if nothing else you'll inspire other people to do that that would be my takeaway message beyond the fact that xnet is incredibly cool and we're going to connect and connected and it's going to be this completely awesome thing that's a great answer right there and uh you know one that definitely evokes a lot of uh fundamental emotion at the end of the day shooting for the stars ending up somewhere in outer orbit yes. is is definitely a great outcome yeah Exactly. Well, look, it's a long way from wearables, which I understand was sort of one of the first areas you were working in back <laughs> yes. in your time at MIT. You know, we'd love to hear a little bit more before we dive into it on maybe your background, some of the projects you've worked on. Yeah, actually, there's a really great through line between all of these points because I've had some kind of big kind of fundamental themes. Um, now, at MIT, you'll have to imagine a significantly younger version of me wearing a black trench coat with hair that was actually even longer and a, a bespoke, you know, wearable computer that I just built myself. And, and I was a cypherpunk back before I think most people knew what cypherpunks were. And crypto, man, it's going to change everything. And this was back in a kind of a more naive time where, you know, I honestly thought, hey, you know, connectivity is just this unmitigated good that's going to be positive wherever it goes. And, you know, crypto is going to be this like, it's going to empower the little guy, right? You know, and all this stuff. And of course, we've seen that as technology has developed, as the internet has become more important and so forth, things like cryptography and, oh, I don't know, connectivity haven't always just been an unmitigated positive. Like, you know, I worked on some machine learning stuff that I was super proud of. And I thought, oh, this is going to have all these positive applications uh, at MIT. And then I learned later on, it's like, oh, yeah, well, maybe it's also contributing to sort of AI-powered authoritarianism in certain parts of the world. So, so it was actually, I mean, in many ways, it was it was a great lesson for me to sort of take some of these like enthusiasms and so forth forward with the idea that we really need to think about the impact. But I still really believe in connectivity. And back at the Media Lab, we were building wearable computers that were always connected so that you would have data and not just data, but, you know, like really cool applications driven by your activity and your behavior and so forth everywhere you go. And of course, people are like, oh, yeah, dude, I've got an Apple Watch, you know, but this was a big deal back then. And I think it's had a really, uh, I think, basically a really positive impact going forward. And I was looking at medical applications and all sorts of stuff. And it was it was a really a lot of fun. And then, you know, so so going from kind of, you know, trench coat wearing custom wearable computer me to being an early um, an early entrepreneur in consumer electronics, I built this little device that was this activity monitor. So think of this as Fitbit before there was Fitbit. And in fact, I kind of made the mistake of I'm going to build the product before I raise the money. And I would never do that as again as an entrepreneur. But anyway, that's kind of what we did. And we built this great product. And we had early trials with Google and Blue Cross Blue Shield and all these other big companies. And then the Great Recession of 2008 hit, right? So the big lesson there I learned was, hey, by the way, get the money, get the money in. But more importantly, think about a sustainable business model. Think about something that really does work for everybody and right from the very beginning, right? Don't just assume that someone is going to hand you money later, right? And, and then I ended up at Apple, you know, and I learned 
really how to do consumer electronics and hardware at big scale, which is a very important thing for me. I learned a lot about design and I've always had a background in design, but I really learned how important design can be and how important user experience is. And I spent some great time there. And then I ended up jumping to Google uh, and got into Google X at the very, very early days. And uh, one of the projects I started at Google X was Project Loon. I and some friends co-founded Project Loon. And for those of you who don't know this, this was this really ambitious attempt to connect the unconnected people in the world by means of these stratospheric balloons uh, that would provide LTE cell phone coverage, right? As crazy as that sounds technically, it worked. It worked really well, actually. Uh, and, and we built this incredible high-quality data network in the sky. And then we went around to tier one mobile operators all around the world, folks like AT&T and Verizon here in the US, folks like Telefonica in South America and, and et cetera, Safaricom. And we said to them, hey, we've got this great network. It'll help you get more customers. It'll expand your reach. You know, we'll make you a deal. Just turn on our network. It expands your coverage. It's going to be awesome. And you'd think everybody would have said, oh, wow, this is cool. The price is right. We're just going to, we're just going to do that, Project Loon. And guess what happened? It actually took natural disasters. Like I was, in fact, just talking to a guy from Telefonica. We were reminiscing about this. It actually took like a natural disaster in Peru for Telefonica there to consider turning on the network after testing it for like over a year. And as soon as the natural disaster is over, as soon as the floods abated, they turned it off again. And you could say, well, why would they do that? And the problem was we built this great advanced data network that wasn't really compatible with Telefonica's mobile network backend, right? And it wasn't just Telefonica who had this reaction. Everybody had this reaction, right? And so what I realized at that time was that data networks might be the future. Data networks are certainly the way people like me think about networks. But if you actually want to plug into the world of telephony, if you actually want to provide service to people all around the world using devices like this, the kind of service that you know they need to talk to their bank, the kind of service that uh, their governments actually require them to have, you have to provide a true mobile network, which is an important and kind of weird inside baseball distinction. But that brings us all the way to XNet because not too long ago, and by the way, I've been doing crypto, like I said, since MIT and was super into Ethereum in the early days and have been an Ethereum dev, but, you know, and have been CTO of another crypto project. But the, but the thing about XNet was it allowed me to say, cool, you know, here we have a problem that I'm passionate about that we took a big swing at and missed on Loon, but we can still like, we can still really address and crypto, which is super cool and something I'm really passionate about. And let's bring these things together and build the first true mobile network, true telephony, SMS, all that good stuff, mobile network um, that's powered by crypto in terms of like incentivizing other people to become our business partners, like to help them, you know, make money as well as improve their connectivity, you know, by helping us build out the network. So that's kind of what brings us all the way to XNet, going through this whole, you know, long story around, you know, connectivity and innovation and tackling big problems. You've made my transition to the next question very easy. Look, that was a really interesting background. And then the path to XNet is definitely one that uh, is paved with many good intentions and many good products, it sounds like. But let's talk about XNet now. Uh, do you want to give us a quick overview of, you know, the project? What makes it special? I think you've talked a little bit about 
uh, some of the problems that you faced in the past. Would love if you could tie in maybe how your background has helped you shape the views around how you've actually built this company. Uh, we'll turn it over to you. Absolutely. So first of all, I want to give a shout out to the OGs in DY, right? Because we wouldn't be here uh, without Helium, for sure. We wouldn't be here without Pollen. And there's some other great projects out there too, right? So, so the thing is, like, I really respect and love these projects because they showed us the way. They showed that you can use crypto incentives, right, to build out infrastructure in a way I think everybody would have said was absolutely either impossible or silly or no one, no one would do that, right? So, so that's like, you know, kind of the, the foundation, the, kind of the shoulders that we're sort of standing on in that space. At the same time, you know, I've had the benefit of working in the guts of some big companies that have a really strong relationship to mobile. You know, I've, I've worked for Apple. I've, you know, of course, you know, iPhone, et cetera. I've worked for Google, you know, had, had my fingers deep in the guts of Android there for a while, right? And I've seen the way these companies operate and I've seen the way the industry operates, right? So by taking the perspective, hey, look, you can actually convince people to deploy infrastructure using crypto, which is great. And also understanding that if your goal is to actually connect people, you need to meet them not only where they're at, but also where the industry is at. That's where XNet comes from. So we see the, the pioneers like you know, Helium and Palm as, as Palm is having built something really, really cool, a great model for incentivizing individuals to deploy a network. And ultimately, by the way, I think these data-only networks are going to be super usable and valuable in the future. But there is a problem. There's a big problem right now. And that is that as ambitious as these projects have been and as successful as they've been in terms of getting people to deploy hardware, there isn't a lot of paid data on those networks yet. Um, it's actually really quite small. And you've got to ask yourself a question. The same question I asked myself when we built Loom. We invested like insane amounts of time and money and effort in building these amazing data-only networks. Why aren't mobile operators playing with us, right? So, and, and the answer is, I realized we were like the vegan burger, you know, the, 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 the impossible burger vendors going to the meat expo, right? You know, no, seriously, we had this amazing product. Look, it's, 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 a, it's a vegan, you know, meat-free patty. It's just as nutritious. It's better for the world. Like, you should all buy this. But the thing is, we weren't selling straight to consumers. We had to work with these folks who are meat vendors. Like, what do they do? They resell burgers. They resell barbecue, right? And they were like, what is this? What is this data-only network? I don't, I, I don't know what is data, right? You know, I think in terms of circuits switched copper wires, I can barely wrap my head around the idea that we've got radios here, right? And so realizing there's a fundamental problem selling data networks through MNOs, you know, was like was like this this thing that we came to on Loon a little while ago. I think Helium and Pollen have realized more recently there's a mismatch. And I'm not saying it won't ever happen, but the value of a data-only network to a mobile network operator is pretty low. And there's circumstances where they will pay for it, but it's called data offload and it's not that not that expensive for them, not that valuable for them. However, if you can sell a validated carrier grade, uh, say 5G footprint to a mobile operator, now that's something they're going to pay for. And they'll pay between like five times, five and 10 times as much as they will. They'll pay basically about a dollar a gig for that network versus you know maybe 10 or possibly 20 cents a gig if it's data only. And they'll only buy the data network in, in areas where they're capacity constrained.
So this is the insight, right? We decided that we could provide, we could build out that telco backend because we know the people who do that, right? We can make the deals because we're employing people who've made these deals before. We can handle the technology and the validation and build this kind of weird thing. My previous analogy was that, you know, like helium and pollen are selling veggie burgers at the, at the meat convention, right? Try this analogy on for size, right? I think that the telcos are a world of dinosaurs, these great big kind of lumbering things, right? And there's been no disruption for decades, right? There's clearly, they're ripe for disruption. And I think DY is like these like futuristic, you know, fighter jet projects that are zipping around and doing all this cool stuff. We're doing something different at XNet. We're kind of like strapping a huge rocket pack to a dinosaur, okay? So it's now going to be a flying dinosaur. It is going to go really fast, right? <laughs> because here's the thing. There is so much money in mobile. This is the thing that many people don't appreciate, right? In the U.S., mobile is a $300 billion market. $300 billion a year flows into mobile, right? With huge margins. Like, like it's disgusting how much money really... I would say not terribly well-run companies, uh, you know, or incumbents are making in the space, right? So if we can siphon off a reasonable chunk of that money and build something that is much more efficient, because we can, because we're starting from scratch, what we can do is we can use that huge kind of money funnel and attach it to this back end, which is, even though it's more efficient, it's still kind of weird and old and clunky, kind of our, our, our dinosaur MNO but we can go really fast and we can grow really fast. And as we grow, guess what? We're also building out a data network, right? So, so we're gonna be able to provide all the services that we think of a project like you know, Helium or Pollen, but at the same time, you will get a real phone number. You will get a SMS message. You will be able to interoperate on this network. In fact, it'll say AT&T or it'll say T-Mobile or it'll say Verizon as you roam on and you won't even know, right? At least in the early stages, eventually it'll say XNet. But, but that's the key. And because we can do this, we can take the money from this big you know, collection of dinosaurs and use it to launch our project. And that's, and that's basically the insight. That makes a ton of sense. And that's a very memorable analogy right there. I don't think I'm going to forget the flying dinosaurs anytime soon. But you told us once that uh, you know, pioneers get shot, settlers get rich. Which I love that quote. Mad shout out to to uh, uh, actually I'm going to leave him unnamed. Anyway, my attorney, my, my 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 attorney who mentioned this to me. But yeah, so the idea is that when you are genuinely a pioneer in a space, and I know this because I been that pioneer on a number of occasions. Let's say, hey, stratospheric internet, ah, loon, yeah. Um, so when you're a pioneer, I mean, you might be successful, and there are some pioneers who've been really successful. Um, but very, very few. In fact, the history of technology is actually pretty much a history of winning second movers, right? And we don't think about this a lot, but, or third movers or fourth movers, right? Because it's like, oh, let's take the web. Well, who invented the web? Tim Barners-Lee. Is Tim Barners-Lee a web bajillionaire? No, he got knighted and that's all cool. But did the first company that developed a great web browser become the winner? Oh, that was that was Netscape. And of course, we all use Netscape browsers today. Uh, no, we don't, right? So, so these pioneers often open up the space, show people where the value is, and then settlers, these second or third mover companies come in and are like, yeah, I see what you're doing there. I also see where this didn't work. I no longer have your sunk costs. I can do this thing from scratch and build something that's even more valuable. 
So with Xnet, I see us as doing kind of like a second mover play in the space of DY. We have great pioneers. And by the way, I don't think that Helium and, and, and Paul and others are, go are going away. I think they are going to make it. But we can look at what they've done. We can say, hey, great core idea, but there's a problem. You don't really understand how to build a mobile network, which is where the money is going to come in, right? And you were kind of making up your tokenomics a little bit as you went along, which I totally get. It was a great way to get your, your equipment out there. But you know, now in retrospect, seeing, seeing, for example, how Helium has had to massively dilute their token supply and so forth, it appears they didn't think everything through. So what we've tried to do is say, hey, we've got the right network core and backend, right? So we can actually sell our network to these tier ones and others who want that kind of service. And we have a 10-year tokenomics plan that, you know, I won't claim it's 100% perfect, but I do think it, it gives us a path to a sustainable long-term value appreciation play for the holders of our token. And I think those two things together are going to make Exit a really compelling uh, option for those people who want to jump into the DOI space. Awesome. Yeah, Rich, got a quick question for you on the, I guess, voice and, and text components of, of the stack. I mean, it, it seems pretty clear that having the full stack would be more valuable to consumers and also MO partners. So I, I mean, I understand why you guys have, have chosen that route. Do you have any ideas or like speculations on why Helium and Pollen decided to go data only? I mean, I would assume it's related to their, their choice of core. But then I guess the question is like, why do you think they chose that core? Is it like less traditional wireless experience or? Yeah. So by the way, I think they made a totally reasonable bet on the future. And I think they thought, Who's going to care about SMS in five or 10 years? Like, you know, no one, right? And I think they they made a reasonable bet on what was a really big investment by uh, a company now called Meta, which was then Facebook, in developing an open source, you know, really this open source core, a network core called Magma. And, you know, Magma was this really kind of ambitious, I'm going to reimagine how a network core should work, assuming we didn't have any of the constraints of interoperability with a bunch of these kind of, you know, old school, old fashioned protocols like diameter and stuff like that, that no one's ever heard of. Right. And, you know, it was a very reasonable thing to do, especially a few years ago when Facebook was pouring tons of money on this project, tons of money, tons of engineers, really great engineers. Some people who I know personally were working on Magma. Right. And in fact, honestly, when we were getting XNet off the ground at the very beginning, we, we also evaluated Magma. But we very quickly realized that although Magma is this really kind of ambitious thing, first of all, it's now stranded. Facebook slash Meta has ditched the project. They've dumped it on the Linux Foundation. And there's really no significant support for the development or maintenance of Magma beyond what some, some projects right now are, are, you know, like DY projects are doing. But I don't think they're exactly rolling in money the same way that, that Facebook was, right? And secondly, again, you know, I think the assumption was that data would carry the day, that ultimately all this legacy stuff no one's going to care about. And over a 10-year period, that's probably right. But unfortunately, right now, it's not the situation. And it's not just that it's more valuable to you. So, so Connor, like maybe you're using SMS for two-factor authentication with, with your bank, in which case, by the way, you probably shouldn't do that because SIM hijacking is a thing. But lots and lots of people do, right? So if you don't actually have a real phone number to receive those SMS messages on, very often you can't even use that service. In fact, they'll be like, oh, that's a burner. We're not, we're not sending a message there, right? So 
real phone numbers still have this kind of weird weight in terms of like authentication. Now, we still use them as a way to prove that people are who they say they are. And the only way they work is on a real network that actually understands how to interoperate with them. So there's that. But the other thing is, and I want to emphasize this, like these big mobile operators, they're really lazy, right? They have a way that they do business. They've been doing it for decades, right? And if I go to them and I say, hey, I've got this newer, better way to do it, you just have to adapt your systems to interoperate with me. They'll be like, <laughs> one of us is a multi-billion dollar company and the other is not. Go play in traffic. On the other hand, there are many businesses right now, you know, for example, like Boingo. Um, you know, you may not know, you may think of Boingo as being like Wi-Fi and airplanes or whatever. Their business is basically going into businesses and facilities and deploying something called DAS, distributed antenna systems. So think of these as like microcell LTE inside businesses, which they build up to carrier quality. And then what do they do as a neutral host? They resell that network footprint, right? They don't just sell it to like AT&T, they sell it to everybody. So when you walk into the building, if you're a Verizon subscriber, it says Verizon. If you're an AT subscriber, it says AT&T, right? So that's their business. And you know what? They do those days, they do those deals every day, right? It's a routine thing. And lots of other people do these deals as well. And the reason they can do those deals is because they're building a carrier grade network, which these, these big MNOs can audit if they want to, and they can verify. So our model at XNet is to basically do the same thing. We're going to build carrier grade network in, in clusters, in, in focused like deployment areas, right? With the help of all of you, because we want you to go out there and like buy our stuff and install it and run it for us, right? And that'll be awesome. We're going to give you great crypto rewards. We're going to build this network and also work with professional installers to make sure we have kind of like anchor tenants who are providing coverage, right? So if you're a professional installer, you put in, a, you put in private LTE or you build out, you know, RAN for tier ones, uh, look me up, right? We're going to work with these folks and we're going to build network to those standards. And then we're also going to build the backend that interoperates, that does all the billing, that does all the roaming, that does all that stuff. And we already have that stuff working in the cloud right now. So, so basically we've got that stuff. We just need to make these deals to turn that on. And we're going to, we're going to have those deals once we have the footprint built out. And again, it's not because like we're smarter or better um, than, than our DUI competitors, um, although possibly better looking. Um, uh, but but what, what we have is we have the right backend. We have the right thing that the, the, the tab A that plugs into socket B. And I think I feel like they're trying to like plug an Ethernet cable into, oh, I don't know, a, a telegraph cable. You know, it's, it's like it's like they're trying to like take this mo the super modern thing. Not that it's all that modern, but plugging it into this really old school thing and it's not working. And we're saying, you know what? We've got telegraph cables coming out of the back end of our service. Just plug them in. We can interoperate with our billing. We can do all that stuff. And that's our competitive. That's that's one of our really important competitive advantages. Yeah, that that exact thing in terms of the billing integration and bringing data on the blockchain itself seemed to be the biggest delay for Helium in terms yeah. of like its, its announcement of a roaming partnership with Dish, I don't even know, maybe over a year ago now. And everyone was kind of waiting around for like a year, like, you know, where's the news? And then there was the MVNO announcement with T-Mobile, right. um, which seemed to indicate like data offload with MNOs is, is more difficult. So that's right. And and I think I think they thought, oh, we've got a great network. Of course, we can make these deals. Just like when we built up Project Loon, we thought, oh, we've got a great network. Of course, we can make these deals. It just turns out that there's more to it than that. 
right? And um, and it turns out again because these big carriers are so lazy. And by the way, they're not just lazy; they are drowning in legacy systems, right? Any additional complexity for them is just anathema. They are running around with their hair on fire, just trying to keep stuff from breaking. Um, and, and it's it's actually kind of terrifying if you ever like look into the depths of the infrastructure in some of these places. It's just like holy crap! Like there's stuff there from the 70s that's still up and running, and it's like oh my god. Right. What we've done again is we've made it very, very easy to plug into that stuff. And to be frank, it's also about the design of our tokenomic system, right? Because if you're if you're helium, right? Okay, sort of one token to rule them all. You know, you burn a little for data, and that's great. But now, how do you differentiate between different kinds of data in different markets? Right? It becomes really complicated. So one of the one of the innovations that we have on XNet. Is of course we have our XNet token, which is kind of this eternal token. You know, it'll always be good. But in order to put data on our network, it gets converted into a data ticket. Now, if think of that XNet token as an ERC twenty on the Polygon blockchain. Now, think of a data ticket as a token that's an ERC one one five five. Which, if you're familiar with the inside baseball on these contracts. This is a multi-token standard contract. You can do fungible tokens, non-fungible tokens, and so forth. So now imagine there's a whole range of different data markets. There's also different date ranges that a data ticket is good for. Imagine it's good for a month, right? It's so good for a month in Sao Paulo, right? So, so by supporting this much more specialized kind of conversion of our core token into specialized data tickets, right, we can now... Uh, handle billing in a much more kind of plausible on-chain way, right? Because someone can show up and say, I have these kinds of data tickets that gives me priority. And our miners can validate that on-chain. They don't have to like call back to, you know, hey, we've got some, you know, this account, blah, 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 right? They can just validate that on-chain because as long as the data ticket is good, serve the data, right? That's that's an on-chain operation. Um, and that's a really, again, again, we learned, it's, it's not that, that, you know, we're geniuses and we just thought this up. We, we looked at what was going on. We looked at the challenges and we thought if a mobile operator were re-envisioning this, what would we want to do? And by the way, the other thing that's kind of cool about these data tickets is they expire. So why would people want cell phone minutes that, minutes that expire? Well, well, I'll tell you why. Because we want to create continuous demand for our token, right? So, so if you could buy all the data tickets you wanted for the next five years, you could sit on top of them and make them a speculative asset, right? Because it's like, yeah, the value data is going up. Well, except the, the data tickets you can buy now will be expired in a month. So there's no point to do that. We want you to be continually buying data tickets as you need them, right? And what that does is it means that tickets are pure utility. They only are good for a certain period of time in a certain location and so forth. And so the market prices on those will just be, you know, the market price for that data at that time, right? And that decouples our token, XNet, which you know, perhaps it has speculative value, I won't, I won't say one way or the other, from these really, really utilitarian data tickets, right? And it means there's always going to be demand to burn XNet into these tickets just as they're needed, right? So I think it's a really nice way to ensure currency demand. Um, and by the way, another way we ensure currency demand that's like super important, right, is that we're building like two things. You can think of like our, our weird hybrid. I, I, I talked about this, this rocket pack power dinosaur, right? There's the dinosaur, which is the MNO, right? And there's the rocket pack, 
which is the XNet decentralized network at smart contracts. And by the way, the DAO that's going to govern it. So how do we, how do we kind of join these together and how we make sure they're connected and not just going in different directions so the rocket pack doesn't drop away from the dinosaur is the dinosaur is taking money from, from other dinosaurs, right? And then 40 cents of every dollar that comes in gets used to buy the XNet token off the market. That, those tokens are being bought and burned, to be, to be really clear, bought and burned into data. And so that creates ongoing demand for XNet. And of course, XNet is being mined by the people who you know, run our miners, who, who, who build our, our infrastructure. And they have demand for that XNet in the form of this currency demand actually coming from our dinosaur MNO, right? And that causes, if you will, the flywheel to turn. As our network footprint expands, more people can mine, but also more data is going to get burned because now we're serving a bigger population, right? And that data translates into money coming in, more and more of these data deals, right? And as those data, as that money from the data deal comes in, XNet Inc. buys that uh, from the market, buys that XNet from the market. So, so again, we have a mechanism whereby I think we've, in a, in a straightforward way, we've really connected fiat money flowing in to our kind of legacy company to drive the value of our token for our decentralized, we, you know, we call them founders. These people are helping us build out our network. We're going to be running our, our miners. And by the way, at some point here, running our validation too. Initially, we're doing the validation just because we got to like be right by the carriers, but you'll also be able to help us with validation in the future. So I think the first thing that came to mind when you know we or i heard about xnet coming onto the scene and you know read the white paper looked into it was that xnet is is much more centralized than yes. both pollen and helium correct um and you know pollen in turn is more centralized than than helium right so there's kind of this spectrum emerging within dy mm -hmm. would love to hear your thoughts about you know why you all chose to launch in a more centralized way and, and what you see the the benefits of that being yeah, so I think it's a great question. And by the way, I heart decentralization. I think decentralization is great. Um, and honestly, if I could just build fighter jets rather than strapping rocket packs into dinosaurs and feel like we could do what we wanted to do, like I would be all over that. So I'm, I'm thrilled with a more decentralized approach. We made a compromise and the compromise is the following. There is no decentralization in mobile service. And it's, in fact, it's so centralized, it's kind of bizarre. Like, it's almost as though everybody who operated a, oh, I don't know, an ISP had to belong to the secret ISP alliance, right? And by the way, in this world, there is no such thing as a standard for email. Every single ISP has its own bizarre standard for email. And so in order to send a message from me to you, Connor, uh, it would have to actually get translated at an intermediate point and there's, by the way, there's, there's, there's hundreds of these standards. And if that sounds completely crazy, I'm telling you how GSM, the GSM Alliance works, and I'm telling you how SMS works. There is no standard for SMS, right? And it's not just like MMS versus SMS, the whole Google versus Apple you know, thing, that, that beef. This is actually like there is no standards-based way of doing things. The back end is all centralized. It's all these kind of insider deals. And so in order to actually plug into that, you kind of have to have an organization that is centralized. And what we've chosen to do is just for efficiency is to build out a centralized backend by hiring people who built out a really awesome, you know, MNO recently. Uh, we've 
hired the guy who was the CTO of TruePhone, recently hired the guy who was like the head of like TruePhone. Think of them as like DevOps, if you will, kind of operations for TruePhone. Like we're building this really great team of people who've done this stuff. And by the way, to give you an idea about how big this chunk of the business can be, like just to do all of these like centralized MNO interconnect things, that was 200 engineers at TruePhone and they were not um, a bloated organization. Right. So when, when folks say, Oh yeah, I'm just going to like drop a network core in and, and I'm going to do some software stuff to do interconnects. I'm just like, I would love to live in that world. That's not the way this works. There's a lot of expensive infrastructure that actually goes into supporting all this. And unfortunately, people who have to monitor it constantly, because what happens if, I don't know, some carrier in Bulgaria decides they're going to change something about their network and now it breaks SMS. Like that stuff happens. Like it's, you know, you have to be constantly on top of these changes. Right. So, so we've chosen to be this kind of centralized organization. We built the dinosaur. We built Xnet Inc. to be this MNO to run this kind of slightly old school thing. And then we've created the, the Xnet Foundation as a DAO, right? Which is, and then the smart contracts. And again, you know, we've kind of kind of bolted these things together through our tokenomics. But we actually think this is the right way to ultimately drive our growth. Um, and and there's there's more to that as well. Like spent a lot of time in consumer electronics. I know how to manage supply chains and make sure we can get our hardware. Like there's a whole bunch of other elements of this as well that we've, we've thought through. But but that critical piece, because right now the fighter jets that are trying to take off don't have fuel. I wish they did, right? They just don't. They're, they're, they're kind of bumping along and don't get me wrong, there's some speculative value. Fighter jets aren't really flying right now. And and, and, I'm, and I'm, in the future, I think they'll, they'll have fuel coming in and they'll be able to fly. But our big lumbering dinosaur with the jetpack, we're going to get lots of fuel in the form of that money coming in from the operators. And so we will be able to fly really fast. We'll be able to grow really fast. And, and again, that's the trade-off we've made. It's pragmatically, we are more centralized. Now, over time, by the way, more and more functions that are being done in the centralized way are going to be transferred to the DAO. More and more, like, like right now, we, Xnet insiders, are choosing the clusters that we're deploying in. Over time, the DAO is going to do that. We're drawing the coverage maps. Over time, algorithms in the DAO will do that, right? So over time, more and more that centralized is going to be decentralized through the DAO. And eventually, and by the way, the DAO has, excuse me, the DAO has a token treasury. The value, we speculate, on Xnet might keep going up. If that does, that token treasury on the DAO might become worth a lot of money. So who knows, possibly in 10 years or something like that, the treasury of this DAO might be might be quite large. It might even acquire the Xnet MNO, right? So we could actually have this sort of reverse merger where the DAO ultimately ends up governing and controlling the centralized entity that just, just like providing a service to the DAO. And in fact, you know, in my in my fantasy future, the DAO doesn't just buy Xnet, it also buys like AT&T and you know, fixes a whole bunch of shit. But but you know, that's the future, right? Um, that could happen, and I'm making a forward-looking statement, and blah blah blah. And you know, no one, no, no one, no one should take that as being a you know strong statement of what's going to happen. But that's, but that's the vision. So, so it's not that we like want to cling to centralization. We see centralization as the as the rocket engine that lets us move towards this decentralized future. Uh, and but ultimately, the governance is going to be decentralized. And the way we've thought this through, and I hope everybody's listening to this, is we're going to be airdropping governance tokens to folks who are productive and contributing members of our community. How does that work? Well, maybe you've bought some equipment and you're running it well. Maybe you're participating in our Discord. We're going to drop governance tokens for the DAO to ensure that it's not just the investors and insiders like me 
who ultimately end up running the DAO. Ultimately, we want the community to be running this DAO. We want the community to actually be figuring all this out. In the, in the future, we see this as a genuinely community-centered project. And I haven't even talked about the charitable side of all of this, which is that we actually, it's actually, you know, my passion to connect the unconnected, but we are dedicating a big chunk of tokens, subsidizing initially, subsidizing connectivity in places that don't really currently have it. And we think that's actually a great long-term bet because it grow, it drives the growth of the network, right? But it also drives economic value. It's not just the mining that's going to come in and support these communities, but it's the it's the additional you know, business and education, other opportunities that are created when you have connectivity. And that's not just like in faraway places. There are plenty of places in the US right now that have really crappy connectivity and suffer as the result. And we see this as something that we can really meaningfully move the needle on. And it becomes a long-term bet on the value of the XN network, right? So that's that's the that's the kind of how that all nets out to the positive and long. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, that was super helpful. I think the space in general has become aware that a more centralized approach initially actually could be better. I mean, Helium moving its proof of coverage off-chain and having it the kind of oracles initially be run by the Helium Foundation and, and Nova Labs is a, a signifier of that. And then Paul also launching in a more centralized way. It just seems easier to build you know, a project in a network, especially early on. So there's a reason why companies, corporations started as top-down structures. And and it doesn't necessarily solve every problem uh, better, but it does allow you to kind of respond more quickly. And when your resources are finite and you have to kind of make decisions, it allows for a certain kind of efficiency in that. And then as, as, as organizations mature, as culture becomes established, as people, as expertise diffuses out through an organization, you need less and less of that centralization uh, potentially. But the other thing is if you, if you decentralize too soon, if you put everything you know, on-chain in terms of smart contracts, you know, and so forth. Well, what if you get it wrong, right? What if you haven't completely thought through your tokenomics? What if, you know, there's flaws in your in your, your proof of coverage contracts and so forth? Well, they're, they're going to be problems, right? And, and it becomes harder to fix those if you've already, like, really decentralized. And then if you've already decentralized and, oh, not naming any names, so let's just say you purport to run a decentralized blockchain, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's a problem, I'm just gonna halt my blockchain, not naming any names in the DUI space. To be clear, you know, it just happened recently, people are like, oh, you said that was a decentralized blockchain, huh? And that no one could have their finger on the scales, hmm, right? So, so it becomes a challenge to both uphold decentralization and to solve certain kinds of problems. And in fact, we can go all the way back to the early days of Ethereum and, you know, and the DAO and the and the and you know Ethereum Classic and Ethereum you know splitting because of an argument over kind of somebody deciding no we have to rewind time and and, and fix a problem so so we want to avoid that we want to have the maximum kind of flexibility early on to fix things to figure out how things work and only after we've really figured that out are we going to like kind of put things decentralize things more and then put them into like a kind of a permanent form in terms of smart contracts on chain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got a, I think, pretty interesting two-part question for you from the minor deployer perspective as sure. well. And so the, I think a lot of the talk in the discord after your launch was that it looked like the both like kind of percentage of network in terms of tokens paid out and also dollar rewards to miners. Both of those metrics seem to be lower than they are early stage for Helium and Pollen deployers. Um, so I, I saw on your white paper, 
you guys were talking about a kind of six to 12 month payback period, you know, very early stage for helium and pollen. It was a few weeks or maybe even a few months at most. So, you know, given that, that kind of two part question, you know, what would you say to a potential deployer of, of your hardware that's, you know, concerned or, or confused about those differences? Sure. Well, so I think it's a, first of all, it's an excellent question. And, and my response is fundamentally this, like, if what you're looking for is something where you can get in, do something for a few weeks and get out and then go work on something else or take your miner offline, then we actually don't want your help, right? That would be a huge problem for us. We're trying to build a carrier grade network. So we really do want you to be in it for six months or a year minimum because, because we need that consistency in the network, right? Now, having said that, we think that if you see this as a long-term proposition, I think that we are much less likely to be subject to some of the token valuation shenanigans, just to put it politely, that have plagued other projects, right? Where sure, if you got in early, it goes to the moon, awesome. Maybe you could sell it on to a greater fool. You get out, woohoo. But, but, that, but that feels like a pump and dump. It doesn't feel like building for the future. So I love decentralization. I love building community. I love thinking in the long term. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't think long term. And so what we're trying to do is balance things. What we're trying to say is, look, if you look, have a portfolio, jump in on the, on the projects that are like dumping tokens on you super fast. Awesome. Do that. At the same time, why not think a little bit more long term, right? It's not a one or the other, right? And by the way, a payback period of six months or a year is still a pretty good investment payback period by any kind of reasonable standards, right? So, 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 so what we want to do is we want to say, hey, be our long-term partners. We're going to make a commitment to you. We want you to make a commitment to us. And those reciprocal commitments we think are going to actually give you a better return over a five or 10-year period by far than you would have if you'd gone on a project that was just throwing tokens at, at people, hyping them, saying, woohoo, we're doing this awesome thing. And somehow at some point, this will magically translate into revenue that will flow back to our token. And then maybe that doesn't happen or it doesn't happen quickly, right? So we're saying, yeah, we're going a little bit slower. We're, we're rewarding people a little bit differently. Um, we're thinking in the long term. But if you are willing to come with us on this journey, we think that over the long run, you're actually going to do a lot better. And I think if we, if we can show this works, other projects will follow along because big picture problems, be that energy, food, communication, transportation, all these things, like if we're going to really tackle these problems with a decentralized approach, it has to be long-term thinking that gets us there, not short-term thinking. And I really want XNet to be the project that proves you can actually bring long-term thinking into DeFi, DY, you know, that adjacent space and really have that work. Um, so, so, so again, not, this is not going to be for everybody. Yeah, no, don't, don't worry. I think most of the, the speculators in the crypto and both DY spaces broadly are, are gone until, until things pick back up again. There, there, there's always cycles. And by the way, a little bit of hype is great. Like, you know, the excitement is, is great. Something else that I want to mention in this is that many people have said, oh, you know, we see your total token supply, 24 billion and blah, blah, blah. It, it just looks like we're you're, we're going to be getting very very little to start with. But the but the but the critical thing I wanted to say is the circulating supply of Exxon is going to be relatively small for a long time due to algorithmically enforced lockups. So that even though you might be doing the thing that many of our folks in Discord have done is like I've look at my minor rewards and I divide by 
some total amount and I figure out your market cap has to be an insane number of billions of dollars for these tokens to be worth anything. And, you know, it's it's a little bit like, you know, trying to value uh, market cap of a company based on not the, the the actual issued shares, but the created shares, right? And in crypto, we assume that all tokens in some sense that have been, um, you know, created or issued. And and I get that. I like it. I understand that's kind of the paradigm that people have had, but but that doesn't drive the price. What drives the price is circulating supply, right? So if you're looking at the value of what you're going to get in terms of the rewards, I think based on, again, we've modeled this out in our emission schedules, I think everybody is going to do just fine. And while I can't, I, I cannot give you any numbers on what we think these tokens are going to be worth, you can, for example, go to our website and see the prices on our miners. And you can look at the payback period that we talked about in the, in, the, in the paper. And obviously that was speculation, but you could do some math to say what what you think that might work out to be. So No, for sure. I, I think that lower circulating supply via longer term lockups also makes it much more believable in terms of a, a six to 12 month payback period. Another important thing, our investors, 36 month lockups. You, if you're a miner, you get liquidity well before... Uh, someone else does. In fact, well before I do. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of frustrating because it's like, mm -hmm. oh, I get this big chunk of insider. Well, yeah, that's great, Sparky. In 36 months, I'll have some liquidity. And by the way, I am totally down with that. Like that should be the way it works. But this means that there could be other projects that have done the same thing. I am not aware of a big project uh, that has tried to do it quite the same way we're doing. We really are trying to delay liquidity for our backers, because I want everybody who invests in us to be invested in this as a long-term project, not as a pump and dump. And I got to say, there are a lot of crypto investors out there who are just who who will read our white paper and be like, "Oh yeah, kid, this is amazing, so cool, long-term thinking, love it." Now I want a proportional chunk of all of your tokens, and and I want liquidity in twelve in twelve months. Implicit in the six to twelve month kind of targeted payback period is the you know, promise or the the hope for paid data transfer on the XNet network That's very right. soon. So could you talk a bit about your yeah. timelines for paid data transfer and what that looks yeah. like? Yeah. So here's the thing, right? Getting money for data is really about building a product that you can sell. And I don't mean convincing consumers. I mean convincing mobile network operators or other businesses. And by the way, we're not just talking to MNOs. We're talking to folks in like the security robotics industry. We're talking to folks who do delivery. We're doing, you know, the people out there who need, as it turns out, not just data. They actually want the full range of services and they're willing to pay for them. So you have to have a product that they can believe in. And that means being able to validate the network to their standards and all this stuff. So we're, so let's just say we're, we're, we're doing that, right? Also, you have to have the interconnects and the infrastructure to do those, the, let's say you're doing MNO roaming, right? Well, so honestly, there are vendors out there that if you have your system set up the right way, you can just pay them tens of thousands of dollars a month and they will hook you up. And now guess what? You get inbound roaming. It's just that simple, right? So, so again, it's not like, oh, I've got to go and haggle over a desk with the president of AT&T. I mean, that could be fun. I don't have to do that. I can get inbound roaming simply by actually paying someone. Now they have to validate that my network is the real deal. And then, and then when say international folks come into our, 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 our network footprint, boom, they get roaming and it's, it's all good. Right. So, so like there are ways to do this that actually are super near term. Right. So what we're saying is that we're going to have paid data first quarter of next year. 
And honestly, like think of this as being slightly colorful. I could walk to my local Starbucks and and you know like sneak a, a a router into their into the drop ceiling or something like that, right? And turn it on and connect it to our backend. I could then go and pay a bunch of money to a bunch of vendors, you know, right now that will connect to our backend. And the next time somebody who comes in from an appropriate you know international location goes at Starbucks, their phone will say, "You have service here," and they will get a connection, right? And they will then, some of that money will flow back to me, right? But it's not the case that we have to negotiate some kind of heroic deal to start getting data on our network, start getting paid data on our networks. We can just do that, right? Now, what we do have to do is to be able to validate our network. We have to actually be able to prove to an outside auditor that, for example, the backhaul on the network is good, that the, um, the coverage is, is reasonable, that the security of our deployment is reasonable, right? You know, when, when AT&T deploys their equipment, they deploy it, you know, in, in with, with, with secure rooms and restricted access to rooftops and so, and so forth to ensure the security and all that stuff. So there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of hurdles that we need to be able to meet. And, and those hurdles are also around, you know, things like handoff. I know there's been a lot of chatting around, you know, handoff. It turns out getting handoff right is hard. It's actually one of the things that we are specifically working on in terms of our back end and our software. It's especially a challenge between equipment made from different manufacturers, right? And that's a thing that we're specifically addressing. So we're building out the quality, we, we're building out the interconnect, and then we can literally, like, we can literally just pay someone essentially right now to start getting paid data on our network. I'm, I'm not going to do a cheap trick and just be like, oh, I've got a few bucks of, of paid data coming in, I win. We're we're gonna like build real quality network, and then we're gonna we're gonna make you know deals that are really beneficial to us. But but we will have that coming in soon. And as soon as we have you know paid data, there's that wired in demand for 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 a token, right? And in fact, the Xnet MNO is going to have to be paying for data just to run certain kinds of testing. So there's going to be demand potentially you know for this token for a market, even before we actually get some of that paid data and we're gonna be paying out of our own pockets potentially to get those tokens, right? Because the XNet MNO does not launch with XNet tokens. That's another thing I should emphasize. Like we've got a business that depends on having XNet to operate. It don't have any. It's gotta get it from somebody else. It's gotta get it from you. And if there's no market for it, it can it can buy from the foundation, but that's but that's not the favorable way to do it, right? And that and if it does, then the foundation just gets money that can go into its treasury and it gets richer. So that's not really a problem. But you know, the foundation is going to charge the MNO an arm and a leg for those tokens just to make it a real incentive to go to the market to get them, right? And and so that you know, hypothetically, that you could say that's another way that the price of the token might be supported is by the foundation charging more if there you know isn't enough available you know on the open market. But but again, that's to actually force the XNet MNO to actually go to the market to get the tokens, uh, so they can get a, a better deal from the from the miners. Perhaps they might get from the foundation. Rich, all of that makes a ton of sense. You know, your enthusiasm is contagious. Your energy is electric. And uh, we are super excited to be partners with you. Us on the investing side, Connor and Hexagon on the deploying side, uh, in this for the long run. And uh, look, I think, you know, you've been very generous with your time here. We just have one last question for you. And then we'll turn it over to you for any takeaways you want to leave us with and things we should be thinking about. But, you know, at Google, you had hundreds of engineers and hundreds of millions of dollars at your disposal. You know, now as a crypto entrepreneur, you kind of have to find ways to incentivize this semi-autonomous yeah, let, me put, let me put on my evil glasses again <laughs> and I can think about my my past as a 
as a Silicon Valley fan company executive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you gotta um, you gotta get this community built next to you. You gotta get them to invest beside you. So, what are the biggest challenges of being an entrepreneur in crypto that you weren't expecting, and so, how have you gone about solving them? So, you know, like like my roots before I became you know a Silicon Valley executive. Long before that, I was a scrappy and struggling entrepreneur in Boston coming out of MIT, right? So, you know, I've, I've, I've been through those moments of, you know, staring at the cracks in the ceiling at 3 a.m., wondering how I'm going to make payroll, right? You know, I, I've had to lay off friends, you know, I've had to shut down a company, right? I know what it's like to be the person, hey, I'm the guy who's here to get you the money. And by the way, Connor, Mahesh, you've all been doing great. You've, you've hit it out of the park, but guess what? I failed. I failed as your, as your leader to get the money in, so I'm going to have to lay you off. Like, I've had those conversations. It breaks my effing heart. So, you know, what that means is like, I, I started out as an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm going back to my roots as an entrepreneur. Now, I have to say, it is amazing to be in an environment that has lots and lots of resources. The thing about being in an environment with lots of resources is that it's like going to the buffet, you know, and you're like, oh, look at all of these dishes. You know, I'll take a little of this, a little of that. Maybe, ooh, those look good. And you pile up your plate. And, and this may seem like a really great thing, but the problem is, well, were those wise choices? And it's not just a meal you're eating, it's just like, you know, planning for the future. So in some ways, having resource constraints, in some ways, having to convince smart people, you know, to go in is actually, I think it's a better place to be. Like, because look, if I can't persuade you that this is exciting, if, 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 if and you're a smart guy, if I can't persuade you to give me your money to do this, then, well, maybe the problem is with me, right? Maybe maybe we should be doing something different, right? So this forces us to get feedback from our community. And it's actually the part of this that, that excites me the most. It terrifies me the most, too, because I'm a new dad and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've got to make this work for my daughter. Um, but But that's the thing. Like, I believe that we can. And I believe we're going to make much better decisions precisely because every dollar that we spend matters. And, and I've got to be out there hustling and connecting with people and persuading you, not just that I'm right, but persuading you to help me get right. Because this really only works as a collective thing. And to me, that's the most exciting thing about crypto is that fundamentally, to the extent this actually works, it's all about a community. And it's all about building a community. And it's all about the wisdom of that community coming together to make things successful, right? So, so to me, that's why this is so cool is that we all got to do it together, right? Um, and, and yeah, you know, I get to march to the front of the parade for a little bit, but it's not about me. Like either this is a really great idea, we're going in the right direction, we're getting the right people involved or we're not. And that's what will carry the day is getting the right people involved. So you listen to this, I think you're the right person. So please get involved and help us make all of this better because we're really excited to work with you. Awesome. Well, Rich, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast today. It was super exciting to hear you know, what you're building at XNet. I think the holy grail for all of DY is paid data transfer. So very, you know, very exciting to hear that you guys are laser focused on that. Um, where can listeners find you, find out about XNet before we <laughs> drop off here? So, so you should absolutely uh, follow us on Twitter. And gosh, I should have all of my socials pulled up because this is the question that always happens. Uh, you should follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Discord on ConnectsaX and our Discord and Twitter and socials, I'm sure, are going to be linked at the end of this podcast so everybody can do it. And I don't have to make sure I'm spelling everything correctly. But yes, I'm, I'm ConnectsaX 
uh, on Twitter and on Discord. We really encourage folks to jump on our Discord. Where that's where we're kind of primarily distributing information and also hashing things out. And also, again, you know, we are going to look to our Discord community as well as elsewhere. But for folks who who we're going to like, you know, tap on on their shoulder and say, here's an airdrop of some governance tokens at some point. Can't tell you exactly when that's going to happen. But that's going to be if you want to be involved, if you want to get involved in that, that's a that's a great way to to, to put up your hand and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm up for the challenge.